Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis 42. Genesis 42. <coughs> we'll look at this entire chapter, although it's uh, <coughs> a bit lengthy. <coughs> it's been a while since we looked at uh, Genesis, a few weeks. We're returning to uh, uh, the story where we left Joseph, the young Hebrew, suddenly promoted by the Pharaoh from being a slave to being a second in command of uh, all Egypt, what we would probably call a prime minister. Promoted from a prison cell to ride in the royal chariot. Now if this were a fairy tale, that would uh, be the end of the story, and we would simply draw a moral that, uh, from the story that uh, you who, the one who faithfully does right, even in the hard times, will... Uh, will be exalted in due time, and we ought to do the same. But this is not a fairy tale, and it's really not about Joseph. This is an historical account of real events which took place in ancient Egypt with real people, a real pharaoh, and uh, the purpose of the account is not to tell us about Joseph or about Pharaoh, but to tell us about the Lord, uh, the sovereign God of all history, who moves all things according to his purposes. Therefore, the story is far from over, for Joseph has been promoted not as the end of the story, but as uh, a means by which God would now use him to do what God is doing to serve his purposes. So let's continue the story, beginning uh, with uh, verse 1 of chapter 42. When Jacob, that's Joseph's father back in Canaan, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us, so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw the brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them, and he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, You have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man, who live in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, It is just as I told you, you are spies. This is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother, and the rest of you will be kept in prison, so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not... Then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God, 
If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep. But then he turned back and he spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded the grain on the donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. And their hearts sank as they turned to each other, trembling, and said, What is this that God has done to us? And they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him all that had happened to them. They said, The man who is Lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We were twelve brothers, sons of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. Then the man who was lord over the land said to, this, said to us, This is how I will know whether you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take food for your starving households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, so I will know that you are not spies but honest men. And then I will give your brother back to you and you can trade in the land. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. And Reuben said to his father, You may put both my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care, and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, My son will not go down there with you. <clears throat> his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. We'll stop there. <coughs> there are so many things that we could talk about in this text. But let me just uh, share two truths with you, which uh, I think are the major thrust of the text. <coughs> we'll spend most of our time on the second one. <coughs> the first one, somewhat briefly, is this. <coughs> briefly but not unimportant, that is God's plans don't fail. God's plans don't fail. We all know that the best laid plans often come up short. We see it every day. You can only uh, read the, pick up a newspaper and you see that the best plans of our national leaders then just don't work out that way and they have to adjust because it just didn't happen. The best personal plans get sidelined by other events that we can't control. Plans at best are only a starting point, an initial guide, 
but we cannot make our plans come to fulfillment. Except for God's plans, that is. God's plans don't fail. Over the years prior to these events, God had been revealing his plans to his people. Little by little, he first told Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob what, what he was doing, what he was going to do with them. And then about 20 years before this account, God had shown Joseph something of his plans in a dream. You may recall that dream back in uh, chapter 37. Joseph, the youngest son of the 12, uh, uh, 12 uh, uh, young men, had two dreams which both showed his father and his brothers all bowing down to him. Well, as you can imagine, Joseph's brothers were incensed when he told them this dream. You think we are going to bow down to you, little brother? <laughs> this is not going to happen. And uh, they were so angry that they eventually decided they would kill him. But instead, uh, when they took him to kill him and threw him in the, the, the pit, the, cistern, the dry cistern, at uh, just the right time, a caravan came, headed down to Egypt, and so they decided to sell him as a slave instead and send him off never to be seen again. There would never be any more talk about them bowing down to him, I guess. They had fixed that. Except that God's plans don't fail. And so, as we read this passage, uh, unbeknown to them, this chapter begins a string of events which will work out God's foreordained purposes. A famine comes in the whole region, including Canaan, where Jacob and his sons lived. The word got out that in Egypt there was food to be bought. And so in these opening verses, Jacob sends his son, his sons except his favorite son, Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother, sends them off to Egypt to buy grain. And there they've come before this man who's in charge of all the grain, someone they don't recognize and uh, yet who they are at his mercy for they will starve without grain and he controls all the grain that's to be had and so verse 6 records that when Joseph's brothers arrived they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground just like in the dream because God's plans don't fail Oh, but that's just a suggestion of all the greater truth, for this is only one little piece of God's plan. And, of course, the greatest example of this is in the, uh, the story of Christ, that, uh, his crucifixion and resurrection. When Jesus appeared, they would not have him as their leader. And so, in a frenzy of hatred, the, the leaders of Israel handed him over to the Roman authorities to be crucified, and they crucified him. But God's plans don't fail. On the third day, he rose again. And a few days later, the apostle Peter explained that rather than destroying Jesus as they had intended, that in reality they had played into God's hands, and by crucifying him, they had brought about the very thing that Jesus came to secure our salvation through his death on the cross. God's plans don't fail. And by the way, God still has plans for the world, for this church, for you, for me. And people still mock and they still scorn and they still say, oh, that sounds so antiquated now. 
It's been so long and nothing has happened. And with all of our modern enlightened thought, we have better explanations for everything than what we might find in the Bible. No. God's plans don't fail. As Joshua said, it's about 500 years after the events that we're looking at this morning, here in Genesis 42, and as Solomon said about 500 years after that, not one word of all the Lord's good promises have failed. Not one word. And so I tell you this morning, you can take this to the bank. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what seems possible to you. It doesn't matter whether we can understand how or not. What God has said will be for God's plan. Don't fail. Jesus says he will come again in power and great glory. You'd better be ready. He's coming. When the Lord says it is appointed to a man, appointed for a man once to die, and after that the judgment, you better make out your will and be ready for judgment. And when the Lord says that the whole earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of God, though that seemed possible to us, you'd better get to telling. Because it will happen. It's not just a manner of speaking these things we read in God's word. So get busy telling what you know. God's plans do not fail. True here in Genesis 42. And just as true today. But God... uh, was not just moving great events of history in this account. He's also working with these individuals, these sons of Jacob, that they might enjoy the blessedness of God's great uh, successes. And so that brings us to the second point as we focus on what's going on with these brothers. And uh, that, that point is this, that God first awakens our conscience. God first awakens our conscience. One of the distinctive traits of we humans, of us humans, is our conscience. We have inside a moral umpire that uh, that 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 sits, uh, who, which sits in judgment on all of our actions and our thoughts and our words, and it can be a deafening voice condemning us when we violate it. Conscience is a strong, strong thing. Yesterday, I read an article online from the Chicago Sun-Times about tax cheats coming clean. It seems that people's consciences bother them when they've cheated on their taxes or ripped off the government in some way. And often it gets so bad that they can't stand it anymore and they have to somehow make reparations. In fact, it happens so often that I read that the Treasury Department has a fund to which payments can be sent if your conscience bothers you. It's called the Conscience Fund. I have the address if you need it. Last year, the Conscience Fund received payments of $264,000. Conscience is a powerful moral compass. 
The only problem is, with a little persistent training, our consciences can be trained. And they can be deadened. So that they seldom bother us anymore. They can be quieted. So that no matter what we do, they never raise their voice again. The Bible says this repeatedly. 1 Corinthians 4.2 speaks of hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. Jeremiah 6.15 says, Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No. They have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. Consciences can be deadened. And I would suggest that's what happened to these brothers of Joseph. Their consciences have been deadened. Years earlier, they had sold their 17-year-old brother into slavery, pocketed the money, concocted a scheme that said he was, must have been torn by wild animals and brought his coat back covered with blood, lied to their father, and there it sat. For years. And now in verse 13, when we find them talking about their family, they act as if nothing has happened. Well, we have a brother back home, and there's one who is no more. Apparently, that heinous crime has been quietly buried, never to be spoken of again, never to be dealt with. In fact, I think we can see how, it's, how they've not been discussing it in a little hint that we have in verse 22, when Reuben, Reuben's the one who the oldest who tried to save the boy when they threw him into the pit thinking uh, rather than just kill him on the spot he says I'll come back and get him and in verse 22 it seems that Reuben doesn't even know that they pulled him out of the pit and sold him rather than killing him he acts as if they had killed him they obviously are not talking about this and, and trying to come to grips with their sin their consciences are hard as rock But you see, if they're going to participate in God's plans for his people, he will first have to awaken and quicken their consciences, soften their stony hard hearts so that they see the, the, the seriousness of their sin. And so God raises up in this chapter, raises up Joseph, of all people, the betrayed brother for this task. Now, God could have worked in these brothers without any secondary means. He could have just zapped them from heaven and awakened their consciences, but God doesn't normally work that way. He works through people, by and large. And so here God uses Joseph, whom we would expect to have been filled with revenge, wanting to simply destroy these brothers the minute he saw them, but instead he becomes the instrument to minister grace to his brothers albeit a severe mercy. We get a hint that that's what's going on in verse 9, where the, these men come and they bow before Joseph. And then we read that Joseph remembered his dream about them. 
And then he said to them, you are spies, etc., etc., and he went on to deal with them. All of that, his dealing with them, is based on him remembering his dream. Now this is pretty sketchy, but here's apparently what happened. You recall that when Pharaoh had told Joseph his dream a couple of chapters ago, that Joseph not only interpreted the dream, but he almost immediately came up with a plan that he gave to Pharaoh as to what he ought to do about that dream, how he ought to uh, uh, provide for the years of famine and, and, and all that. Uh, Joseph was wise and had great insight and skill. And that had saved Egypt. And now Joseph is confronted with the appearance of his long-lost brothers, this rebellious, hardened, dysfunctional group. And Joseph remembers his dream and realizes it's all coming true. And so he apparently did just what he did in regard to Pharaoh's dream. He begins to devise a way to deal with this dysfunctional family in order that God's purposes, which we know that Joseph was coming to understand beyond his own pain, that God's purposes would be served. Dr. Bruce Waltke, a notable uh, Old Testament scholar, put it this way. He says, when the narrative is read as a whole, it seems apparent that he constructs a series of events in accordance with the dream, and in so doing, disciplines, punishes, and tests his brothers to transform their character and heal the rift between them and him. Just as Joseph planned a strategy for saving Egypt based on Pharaoh's dream, he now plans a strategy to save the family, both physically and spiritually, based on his dream. In other words, as God works out his plan of restoration and reconciliation, he does so using Joseph to first take some steps to awaken their conscience. And so in this chapter, I think what we can observe are some of the steps by which God, through Joseph, does this work. Dr. Jim Boyce, in a series of sermons on this chapter, suggests several tools that God used to awaken their conscience. Let me suggest four things to you. First of all, they, they felt the pinch of want. God awakened their conscience by causing them to feel the pinch of their neediness. And as long as things went well back in Canaan, the deadened consciences of these men just remained in a coma. They went about their business, and uh, they never spoke of their sin, and they never thought of their sin. But hunger, you know, is a powerful motivator. When the famine came, something had to be done. They heard there was food in Egypt, but for some reason they didn't go down there until finally their father stood and said, what are you guys doing standing around looking at each other? More than one person has suggested maybe the reason they were standing around looking at one another is that the very thought of facing Egypt was something they didn't want to get into. But hunger is a powerful motivator. And it was go to Egypt and look for grain or die. And so they headed for Egypt. The pinch of want. 
demands attention. See, God often uses want to deal with our hard hearts too, doesn't he? In Amos 4, we hear the Lord say, I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none, and it dried up. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards. I struck them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig trees and olive trees. I sent plagues among you as I did in Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. You see, the Lord is saying sometimes he uses the pinch of want. Sometimes he puts us in desperate need to awaken our conscience. Isn't that what happened to the prodigal son? As long as he had lots of money, he was spending it on his friends and he was living high on the town. But when his money was run out and his friends were gone and he sat in the pigsty, he began to think about home and his father. The pinch of want awakened his conscience. This morning I tell you, if God's allowed you to feel the pinch of want, financial pressure, hunger one kind or another, turn your hearts and seek his face. Perhaps God is using that to awaken your conscience that you might be useful to him. Well, that's the first thing God used. The second thing he used is that they received harsh treatment. He's told their father, there's this man down there in charge of everything. He speaks harshly to us. They did. They received harsh treatment. We're pretty sensitive about harsh treatment. We want to be treated with respect and kindness. And in fact, we can get very disrespectful and unkind to those who don't treat us that way. But God put these brothers in a place where they had no options, where they had to take it. They were treated harshly. And there was nothing they could do about it. They were harshly interrogated. They were falsely accused of being spies. They were finally thrown in jail. And there was absolutely nothing they could do about it. At first, it looks like Joseph is being vengeful toward them. But a closer examination indicates he had bigger purposes than that. As one writer says, Joseph tax Joseph's tactics are harsh, but his emotions are tender. Remember the account we read here where he speaks harshly to them. And he turns around and weeps when they can't see him. What's going on here? Dr. Jim Boyce recounts F.B. Meyer's wonderful explanation. Let me just summarize it for us. It seems as if what Joseph is doing is he is, is repeating exactly the kind of scene that had taken place back in the desert when he came to his brothers and they laid hands on him and threw him in that cistern so many years ago. It seems like he's replaying, he's setting up those same kinds of events. When he came out to his brothers uh, as they were tending the flocks, his brothers accused him of coming out to spy for their father and take back a bad report. And so now when Joseph sees his brothers coming, what's his accusation? You've come to spy. You have evil intentions. Back in the pasture there, when, 
when Joseph was accused, he would have undoubtedly said, no, I'm only here for the family's welfare. I'm not doing anything wrong. And, and, and now the brothers answer the same way. No, my Lord, they say, your servants have come to buy food. Your servants are honest men. But in spite of all the protests back in the desert, Joseph's brothers seized him and they threw him in the pit. And now in spite of their protests, Joseph says, you know, you are spies, take them off to jail. In other words, Joseph's actions seem to be uh, 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 intended, calculated, to startle them with a sense of deja vu all over again, only now the tables are turned. They're seeing it from the other side. Now, none of us likes that kind of harsh treatment, and we avoid it like crazy, but sometimes God puts us in such situations where he uses the harshness to quicken our conscience, to cause us to see ourselves. If anyone's been in the military, you know this is just the way life is. Harsh treatment is a way of breaking you down so they can rebuild you into a soldier that you ought to be. And the Bible talks in those terms, endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So if God has put you in such a situation, if God has caused you to have to endure hardship, as we read in Hebrews, don't despise that discipline. God intends it to awaken our conscience. There's a third tool here that God is using. They were made to feel the press of solitude. God worked to awaken their conscience by causing them to feel the press of solitude. You know, many people suspect that our lives move so fast and we keep the volume up so loud just so that we don't have to deal with solitude. We don't have to face the quiet. We don't have to face ourselves. But God knows the value of enforced silence. Enforced solitude. And so immediately after their reenactment of the, uh, of the harsh treatment of their brother, all ten of them go off to sit in jail for a while. It's actually only three days, but they had way, no way of knowing it was only going to be three days. And there they sit, enforced solitude. Just sit and think about it for a while. Still one of God's great tools for our sanctification, isn't it? Sometimes in spite of everything that we might do to avoid it, we find ourselves flat on our back. Confined to our home. Sitting in the dark with the power out. Television won't work. Radio won't work. There we sit. Don't despise the hours, the days, the months of enforced solitude. For perhaps God is causing you to feel the press of solitude in order to awaken your conscience to begin his renewing work in you. And we see, according to verse 21, that these things worked. For when they were released from prison, finally, for the first time that we know of anyway, they began to make a connection between their terrible sin against Joseph and their present trouble. Look at verse 21. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. 
We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Finally, they made a connection. Finally, they realized that maybe this present trouble was, was a result of their sin. As they began to own up to what they had done, God was softening their conscience, awakening their conscience, that they might see their real situation, the heinous sin of which they were guilty. That's what God does. He uses the press of solitude sometimes. Well, finally, there's a fourth thing that we see God using here, and that's undeserved kindness. We see it first in verse 18, 19. They're all sitting in prison, and there they said, in the, and what Joseph had said is, you will all sit there until your younger brother Benjamin comes. He wanted so much to see Benjamin, his, his, his one full brother. These were all half-brothers. Send one guy back and bring Benjamin and you will sit and rot in jail until I see my brother. He didn't say my brother, until I see Benjamin. But now he changes, after three days, he changes his plan. And he says, no, I will only hold one of you. And all of you can go back. Why? Because I fear God and because I don't want your families to starve. Take food and go back. Kindness. Undeserved kindness. Then we see it again as they go with their grain. Unbeknown to them, Joseph has all their money put back into their bag. Now Joseph's motives have been a mystery to many, and there's been all kinds of discussion about what Joseph was doing there. But there's nothing to suggest that it was anything other than sheer undeserved kindness. Perhaps Joseph knew that this family who was so hurting for food did not have the money to make another trip to come again. And he wanted so much to hear his father and to see his brother. He sent the money back with them. Oh, but when they stopped and found the money, they were terrified, not pleased. For you see, they didn't know anything about forgiveness. And so they interpreted even this kindness as a threat. Dr. Jim Boyce explains that this way God was doing good to these brothers, returning their money. But because they were not yet in right relationship to him, they feared even his goodness and turned to one another trembling. Don't you know that's how God often works with us? Romans 2, 4 says, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience? Don't you realize that God's kindness lead you to repentance. But there is one encouraging sign in verse 28. We read that their hearts sank as they turned to each other, trembling, and said, What is this that God has done to us? For the first time, these brothers recognized that God is a player in their lives. That God is present. That God accounts for the things which are happening to them. 
They're no longer just blaming one another or blaming Joseph or blaming the situation. God has done this to us. And you see, God has finally awakened their conscience that he might now deal with them. Oh, there's a long way to go for them to know forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation and all the blessings of his covenant. But it begins by God awakening their dead conscience to see their sin. Folks, God's still doing the same thing today. He uses the same kinds of tools that he gave Joseph to use. The pinch of want, the pain of harsh treatment, the press of solitude, and undeserved kindness. He uses those tools on you and me for a hardened, callous, deadened conscience is useless to him. It only steals itself against the judgment which is sure to come. But in his grace, God is awakening dead consciences that he might turn us to repentance then and show us his grace. Oh, when our conscience is awakened, it's painful. Suddenly we see ourselves for what we really are, not what we would like to think we are. Suddenly the weight of our sin is overwhelming. It's not some little thing like we dismissed it. Suddenly we're in a crisis full of guilt and despair. But you see, that's a good place to be. For there's an answer to guilt. For this Jesus died and made atonement for sin, that he might remove our burden of guilt. But we'll never flee to him until we understand how bad it really is. So if he awakens your conscience to see your sin as it is, run from it and run to Jesus in whom there's forgiveness and safety. For this reason, he awakens our conscience that we might repent and believe in him and have eternal life. Well, there's much more to this story. We've only begun. It's God's working out his plans with his family. Can't possibly cover all of the reconciliation in one, in one day. But it begins, I just want us to see this morning, it begins with the awakening of the dead conscience. It did for them and it does for us. We must first be made to sin our, see our sin in its ugliness and desperately desire to abandon it. There's no hope of forgiveness and reconciliation in life until we start there. And what will that look like when it happens? Well, Psalm 38 describes it, this anguished experience of realizing our sin. So as we close, let me just read part of the paraphrase of Psalm 38 from the 1912 Psalter. Listen to the concern. Listen to what an awakened conscience sounds like. In thy wrath and hot displeasure, Chasten not your servant, Lord. Let your mercy without measure help and peace to me afford. Heavy is my tribulation. Sore my punishment has been. Broken by thine indignation, I am troubled by my sin. With my burden of transgression, heavy laden, overborne, humbled low, I make confession for my folly now 
I mourn. Weak and wounded, I implore thee, Lord, to me thy mercy show. All my prayer is now before me, all my trouble thou dost know. I am prone to halt and stumble, grief and sorrow dwell within, shame and guilt my spirit humble. I am sorry for my sin. Lord, my God, do not forsake me. Let me know that thou art near. Under thy protection take me as my Savior now appear. The cry of one whose conscience has been awakened to see his guilt. May that be your cry and mine, tender-hearted before the Lord. Amen. Shall we pray? Thank you, Lord, for your word and your spirit by which you work with us. And thank you that you control the circumstances of our lives in order to bring us to the end of ourselves, in order that we might turn and find life and rest in the Savior. Oh Lord, do that in us, in every one of us, especially in those who do not know yet the hope of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would cause them to see the need that they might run unconditionally to Jesus and trust you and trust your work on their behalf and find rest for the weary soul. In his name we pray, amen.